Welcome to BeastNet. You've tuned in to a special episode dedicated to the Sober Spartan. These episodes are an extension of the Facebook group, Sober Spartans. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect any policy or position of anyone but themselves. Show guests share their stories openly and honestly. Some will remain anonymous, some will share their names. Please be respectful of the privacy of those who wish to remain anonymous. Hey everybody out there in BeastNet land. Today you got Brother Boggs and we're doing a Silver Spartans monthly special. We're talking with Tatiana Hugmeyer about uh, her life and everything that uh, led into her path of sobriety. So say hello, Tatiana, and tell the people a little bit about yourself. Hi, everybody. Um, well, my name, yes, as you mentioned, um, is Tatiana Pugmire. I am, uh, let's see, 27 years old. I have uh, nine years, just over nine years of sobriety, and um been running in Spartan races for three years now. So three years you've been doing Spartans, but nine years you've been sober. So you got sober when you turned 18. That's usually when everybody starts partying. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I uh, I don't know. It's kind of a, I've always described it as, you know, a double-edged sword, I suppose. Um, I managed to wreck enough of my life and my surroundings at such a young age that um, I was fortunate enough to pull it together at still yet a young age so yeah it's a that's a whole lot better than what I did I waited until I was almost 40 to get sober so <laughs> yeah yeah so I heard the... that a lot from a lot of uh, a lot of my you know sober friends or people at meetings that I go to so I am I do recognize I'm fortunate to have Pull it together, 18. Um, so if you don't mind telling, telling your story, uh, what was it like in the in the years before sobriety? And, and if you wanted to talk about what the breaking point was and what made you change your, your life. Yeah, yeah. I um, Mom, if you're listening, now's the time to stop. <laughs> Just kidding. She always... Uh, she always gets emotional every time I talk about my my past or you know what it was like before so I always joke with her about that but um I, you know I it, it, for me it had, I was gosh 12 or 13 when I started um drinking alcohol and and I was living in New Mexico at the time in a a really small town. We had moved there, me and my family, my sisters and my parents. Um, and since I was maybe eight or 10, I don't know, young, younger. Anyway, I started, you know, when I was 13 and um, it was such a small town that for me, I, I think the best way I could describe it is, is that it started with curiosity and then it, it from there it evolved into boredom and then even further it became to me what I thought was a necessity 
you know, every day, which I'm sure a lot, a lot of people could relate to. That that is very true. Um, yeah. You know, when I was reaching that reaching that point when I had to stop, it was pretty much breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I was lucky to to get three or four hours of work out of my day before I was having headaches and and feeling the need for it already. Right, right. And I guess for me, it was, you know, as we've mentioned, I was a young person, so I never really experienced having to go through a work day or having destroyed a marriage or, you know, the difficulty of getting kicked out of a bar, you know, things like that. I've never legally ordered a drink, you know, things like that. So what for me, it wasn't like I destroyed adult life things. It was, I guess, for me, a lot of it was internal. Uh, You know, while I did, you know, I caught a couple of charges and I did ruin some other things, relationships and things like that. I think for myself, a lot of it, most of it was internal um, suffering that I knew I could be better. I knew I could do better and I wanted better. (laughs) So, yeah. As as such a young person getting into to alcohol, it must have been looking back. It probably took away from things from your childhood. I'd assume. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really that's a really great observation. Um, it started, you know, it started with alcohol, and then for I'm sure a lot of people could relate. For me, from there, it evolved into you know, alcohol and marijuana, and then some of the more harder drugs. Um, but, you know, it it took away, I guess, my a sense of, like, innocence at that age, a sense of normalcy. Um, and to me, I thought this is what everyone was experiencing, this turmoil and this just such, like, anger and discontent with life. I thought this is how it was. I thought, you know, that, that everybody was experiencing this and uh you know and what? then a couple you mean, of years you mean it's not normal? What's that? I, I always I always joke about that. What you mean it's not normal to have a drink for breakfast, <laughs> lunch and dinner? <laughs> right. That's exactly that's exactly how it was for me. Um and then it kind of dawned on me maybe like a year and a half or two years before I got sober that um, no, <laughs> this is not normal. There's something very, I guess, abnormal about my behaviors, and they don't need to be this way. And yeah, yeah, I could uh, definitely see that at that age. Somebody maybe point that out to you that it's not normal, even. Um, so essentially, your entire drinking career was about six years of your life drinking drugs, miscellaneous other, and and something came to a head that caused you to, to stop. Did you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. Um, gosh, it was, it was just after I turned 18. You know, the, the years leading up to that, I, I don't know, I just got, 
I felt like I was hit by a truck, you know, when I wasn't really, but I felt like that one, one day I, I, for some weird reason reflected on every, nearly every negative experience, negative, just everything that I had done to myself. I'd gotten a DUI at the age of 15. I had completely ruined my varsity track career. I was in rehab where I ran away and that was unsuccessful. And then I got, you know, pulled over again for a potential second DUI. And, um, and all of these things, you know, all of these things and just life was not going the way that I had wanted it to go or pictured it to go. And, and I just started reflecting on that. And then the added, you know, New Mexico is, there's a lot, I mean, I feel like you can find a lot of prevalent groups or, you know, group of people, no matter where you go, but in New Mexico, um, gang activity is a very, you know, prevalent in my eyes issue out there. And I was getting, you know, I was dating a guy, I was getting too involved and, um, I was just scared. I was scared and I didn't want to be scared anymore. And, uh, so after, you know, after my second arrest, I had, I was supposed to fly out to Oregon where I got sober and I missed my flight because I got arrested and was in jail. And, um, for a lot of people, the jail cell is really where it hits you. And for me, the jail cell is (laughs) really where it hit me. I, I knew that, uh, this is not, this is not how it's got to be anymore. Something's got to change. And so a couple of days after that, I was able to finally get out to Oregon and just kind of isolated and focused on myself. So when you got to Oregon at 18, did you find a AA or an NA group and start with that route or was it just uh, self-reflection and drying out on your own? I did go to, I went to a lot of different meetings. I went to AA, I went to NA, I went to, oh gosh, what do we call it? We call it CODA, which is like Codependency Anonymous. Um, When I moved out to Oregon, it was probably the hardest, scariest, best decision I ever made for myself. Uh, My parents had divorced a year prior and my mom Uh, moved out to Oregon, and um, she was the one that kept trying to get me out there, you know, to let things cool. And um, and so when I moved out to Oregon is when I actually learned how prevalent alcoholism, alcoholism in particular, but I guess me, for me, it was addiction as well, um, how prevalent it is in my family. And I had no idea about it even being genetic or it being within my family until I got sober. And I learned that my grandfather, my, uh, my dad's dad was a recovering alcoholic. And then I got sober and then my aunt got sober and we're all, we've all been very, the three of us, especially extremely bonded and open and supportive with each other about that. 
And so when I moved out to Oregon, which is where my extended family lives, my aunt and my and my grandpa, he actually took me to my very first AA meeting, which I still to this day call my home group and I still see them when I can. They're like my, you know, of course, I'm sure again a lot of people can relate. They're like my second family. So that's very true, and to, to start going to your first meeting with a family member, that must have been very impactful. It, You know, it wasn't at the time because I felt like I didn't know what to expect. I felt like I shouldn't say much because my grandfather's here. Um, I didn't really know how much I meant to him and how much he had actually talked about me. Um, in the rooms prior to my showing up and, and how that was affecting not necessarily his sobriety, but his mental state, of course, you know, and, and he was worried and I didn't really, it didn't really hit me um, about how fortunate I was to have him and to have that um, until down the road, you know, because when you first get sober, at least for me, and sometimes, well, most of the time, even still to this day, my brain is just complete mush. So I didn't, I wasn't really in tune with my feelings and my experiences. I was just trying to focus on not picking up, you know. Yeah, I think it was about the time that I got my one-year chip and I was finishing up the steps and then really ingrained in it where I sat back and reflected on the changes in my life in that that one-year span. And there was still a lot to go for me. I mean, I'm three three years and about a month and a half sober. And and even now, if I sit and I, if I do some meditation and look back on things, there's still things that are improving daily. But that first year when I sat down and looked at it, um, that's when it kind of became emotional for me. Yeah. Yeah, I remember it becoming most impactful and emotional and kind of the whole reflection piece right around my 18 months is when I just kind of started checking in more with, you know, the just leaps and bounds that I've made. And and even still to this day, I often describe my youth, my drug use and, and the trouble I was getting into. Sometimes it still, it feels like a past life especially because now I've been sober longer than the amount of years that I was using it. It feels like that was a separate part, like that was a completely different person. And in a way it's kind of, it, sometimes it's cool to feel like, you know, I once lived this past life and here I am living this new life. And at the same time, I need to keep it, at arm's length and remind myself that this is something I could very easily and very quickly go back into. For a while after you got sober, if I remember correctly, you started working with and you were looking at uh, long-term being an addiction counselor or something along those lines, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Let's see, I probably spent the first year, you know, hiding out, getting my bearings, just focusing on the next right step. And then, and then I, you know, 
after a year of sobriety, I started thinking, all right, I have this. It's like a new chance, a new opportunity. What do I want to do? Especially because I'm still young and, you know, I haven't completely destroyed everything. I've, I've got this. What do I want to do with it? And um, honestly, for a while, I thought I wanted to go to cosmetology school, <laughs> which I'm glad I didn't. Um, you know, that's it's fun doing all that, you know, girl stuff. But um, I wish I could remember the day. I wish I could remember the moment, you know, that I that it dawned on me. But it, there was just a day where I was. It had dawned on me to maybe I should pursue being a drug and alcohol counselor because, you know, as I previously mentioned, I went to a residential rehab facility and to my knowledge, the the counselor that was there uh, was not in recovery or, you know, didn't have, didn't appear to have a similar struggle. And so I felt like she heard me, she listened to me, but I didn't feel like she could relate or understand the just deep, intense, emotional, just internal feelings that I was feeling. And and so I thought to myself, I want to be able to offer that, especially to adolescents. And so I went and got my degree and certification in drug and alcohol counseling. And I was a drug and alcohol counselor for just over five years. I, I was a counselor in many different settings. You know, I was able to experience being a counselor in a adolescent residential rehab facility, and that was probably my favorite setting. Um, I've been a counselor for adults. I've been a counselor at, at outpatient treatment settings. Um, so it was it was a journey for sure. Yeah, I think that uh, what you were saying about your counselor when you were in rehab not having that connection you know when when I even just talk with some of my friends that that aren't wired the way I am you don't get that connection but then you find people like us that are just wired very differently <laughs> and uh, yeah and we connect we connect immediately and yeah uh, and I feel like we can relate immediately to that I, just so many different emotions that you experience as an addict to, you know, like a, a, a point of desperation or just like that, that mental obsession, you know, that I, I don't know. I feel like there's always something missing when I, which, you know, counselors who aren't in recovery, don't get me wrong. There, there are still some excellent, excellent counselors out there and, even more, there's some excellent people in this, you know, in this world who aren't in recovery, but um, there's, it's just a different connection that it's, it's comforting to know that I'm not alone. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's why when you're, you're in the meetings, they always say to get a sponsor because, you know, that's the person that they've kind of been through that path. And, and a lot of times you pick a sponsor based off of, other connections and just that bond of, of sobriety helps so much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that was something that I was fortunate with my grandfather. He was he wasn't. We were very 
I think we were very good about maintaining our boundaries. Um, he was not my sponsor. We didn't think that that would be good for either of us, but he was, he was definitely there every damn day that I needed him. And, uh, I will never, I will never take that, my relationship with him for granted. It's always something I feel like I, I owe him for that, but. Yeah, he took a, a big risk, you know, reaching out to you and bringing you in there, and and it worked. Yeah, I'm yeah, very glad it was. To see that. <laughs> I absolutely, it was definitely, of course, a, a lot of concern for the family because I had, you know, obviously the goal when I went to rehab was to get sober, and and I didn't, and then you know I relapsed, and then I gained maybe a week or a month, and then I relapsed, and. <clears throat> and uh, so my family was, of course, concerned about that. But when my when my mom was trying to, you know, get me to fly out here to the, you know, to Oregon, um, one of the things she made me do was, was call my grandfather and um, ask him if he would help me because she knew that, you know, she couldn't do this alone she can't make someone you know you can't make someone want to get sober you can't really force anyone to do anything so she was just trying to pull any support she could get so I had to I'll never forget the phone conversation with my grandfather I was on somebody else's back porch because I'd been kicked out from my dad's house and so I wasn't I'd been you know away from home for like six months and uh and I called him from a random phone number and he, you know, he didn't know it was me at, at first, of course. And then I explained to him what was going on. And I asked him if, you know, if I move out to Oregon, are you willing to help me? And he, <laughs> I thought it would be, you know, some type of family, like loving response of like, absolutely, I'm here for you, anything, ever, whatever you need. And all he said was only if you're ready to pull your head out of your ass. And, uh, to, you know, today I laugh about it and I completely understand, you know, the, again, the boundary that he was trying to maintain with that of like, I'm help, I will help you if you're willing, if you're willing, um, and still trying to keep, you know, himself at a safe distance, but it was, you know, from there, the rest is history. Yeah. You can't force somebody to get sober. That never works. And, uh, no, and yeah, almost never. It has to be their choice. Um, that was probably the last three years of my personal drinking career that uh, that my wife and I fought all the time because she thought I could just turn it off. You know, why can't you just stop that kind of conversation or you Absolutely. must stop or I'm leaving you or this or that. And so then it turned yeah. into hiding it. I, I hit it. Yep. Yeah. I drank, drank like a fish, and uh, she thought I was having like one beer a day and controlling myself, and I was quite literally going to the closet and drinking uh, Everclear. Right. <laughs> and that's that like point of desperation, you know, that I'm talking about that that people such as your wife, who don't get me wrong, is a wonderful person, but some people don't understand why we can't stop and even still to this day I think you know one of the hardest things I've experienced 
list as a sober person at my age is everybody else that is at my age. I don't know many people at my age that are 100% sober. And, um, and I still, you know, I do have lots of friends that partake in whatever, you know, whatever it is they want to do. I don't judge that's, you know, do your thing, whatever. Um, but even, even still to this day, I get questions from people of like, you know, so you can't, are you like ever going to drink ever or, or how long is it? I've even had a guy ask me how long I have to go to meetings. And I was, I was so (laughs) boggled by the question. I was like, I don't have to go to them and they never end. I just, I just go, I just go, (laughs) you know, just questions like that of, of you know they they're innocent curious questions but to me it it tells me how not necessarily uninformed but the disconnect of understanding between normies i guess or regular people and people like myself who are in recovery people who people who don't have the allergy yeah yeah yeah. I'm allergic to alcohol. It makes me take all my clothes off. <laughs> I always I always like the one uh I'm allergic I'm allergic to alcohol. Every time I drink it I break out in handcuffs or you know, something like that. <laughs> exactly. And you know, when I first started going to meetings and I heard those stories of relapse, you know, at one of my first meetings a guy was there and, and he was crying because he had just got back from California where, you know, he was up here in Seattle, had a couple of drinks, woke up a few days later in California, $15,000 gone and his wife uh, picking him up from jail and he had no clue how it right. happened. Exactly. And well, it happened so well, fast. Yep. Right. Right. And that's something that scares me. And, and again, I've even, I've even had someone ask, you know, like, what do you think it would be like if you just tried to have one drink? And and I like to think that, you know, it would start off fun like it did, you know, when when I first started. It would be fun. And then that obsession would come back. And then it would turn into, you know, every weekend. And then it would turn into every day. And then it would turn into losing my job. And then it would, you know, it, it never it never ends, I feel like. And that's a risk I'm not willing to take. Yeah, we, my sponsor and I called uh, playing it through. Um, you know, you sit down and you think to yourself, what happens if you take that drink? Play it through all the steps in your head and what point you end up in jail. Because that's just exactly. the way that we're wired. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. And there's, you have to almost accept the fact at some point that that, that is just who you are. Right because that's what has happened nearly every time before. And to me, that's, it's like, it makes sense. It's like, it's down to a science. It's these repeated behaviors that I literally have no control, no control. So where does where does racing fit into this for you? Um, for me, it kind of served as a as an outlet for all of my angst of needing to do things. But when I first started, it was real tough because you'd cross the 
finish line and they're basically handing you a beer. <laughs> right. And and again, for myself as a person at my age, it's amazing how much I experience on a daily basis of, you know, people offering me a beer or a drink or whatever, you know, it's, um, for me, I'm very fortunate. I'm very happy and I'm very grateful about my, like the, the self-discipline I have or the will to say no again, because that feels like such a past life that I'm like, nope, that, you know, 10 years ago, Tatiana would have been all about this, but I'm good. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I, I wasn't introduced into, into obstacle course racing until I was six years sober. And, and so, you know, for me, fortunately, I had my sobriety under my belt at that time. And, and, um, I think it's more more than just racing for me is running or working out altogether. A racing is a piece of that because I need to, you know, run and work out in order to be able to race, you know, the way that I want to, which is competitively, hopefully someday. Um, and so for me, it keeps me in line, you know, it keeps me focused, it keeps me out of trouble. Um, I used to be, you know, as I mentioned, I used to be a track runner, which, you know, a lot of track runners are short distance. I used to be a very short distance runner. And now uh, I never, I never pictured myself being a long distance runner. And here I am, you know, I just casually ran eight miles the other day. And, um, and so for me, it's, it's turned into a therapy, you know, therapeutic. And yes, racing is expensive, so it's an expensive therapy, but um, it's still cheaper than a beer. It's kept me exactly. Yeah, you're ex- you're absolutely right, and it's fun, and it's it's an it it's a it's a setting and a group of people that allows me to be me, you know, and uh, I love I just love being a part of it. Yeah, it's a ton of fun out on the course, and, and like I said, for me it was real weird because I was I was still drinking when I started and did my first couple of races, a couple of warrior dashes, and mm-hmm. so of course at the end of those I drank, and and honestly it was like ten dollar beers, so I didn't really like buy a whole bunch, but I made sure and I always got my free one, and anybody else that had bands I'd go get their free ones, and then when yeah. I quit three years when I quit three years ago. I still raced, and, you know, I think it was two years ago, Spartan made it so you could actually get a Fit Aid or whatever um, for your beer band, which I thought that was really cool instead of just offering beer. Um, right. That's when I realized it was two years ago. But, uh, yeah. you know, for, for me, just getting out every weekend, I'm out, you know, running or something. Uh, Mike and I, who, you know, Mike is a, he's a normie. He drinks and he can stop. And it's amazing because him and I grew up, we're best friends now for 38 years. And we're completely the opposite when it comes to that allergy. Right. Isn't that amazing to like have nearly the same environment as someone else? You guys were best friends. You probably hung out a lot, hung out with the same people, did the same stuff. And here we are with two different outcomes where, you know, you're having to 
refrain, and he's, you know, like you said, a normie. It's just interesting, and that's what intrigued me into being a drug and alcohol counselor, the field of psychology in general, is like, what about my brain makes me different, makes, you know, makes that not a possibility for me as opposed to someone, you know, it's just, ugh, it's intriguing to me. <laughs> it, it, it comes back, I think, to that genetic predisposition, because like you said, it's, you found a lot of your family, and oddly enough, a ton of my family is in the program, and I, I didn't know that until I started. And uh, right. you know, a lot of my aunts and uncles, right. one of my uncles just celebrated 30 years. My aunt, I think, was 31 years or something like that. And, right. and it's real weird because when I was a small child, we had these family reunions, and these were all the aunts and uncles that were the partiers, and they were just so fun to be around. And And then I find out that, you know, they were fun to be around, but, they weren't fun to be around <laughs> a right. lot of people. And, yeah. And yeah. now they're all pushing yeah. years and years. Right. That's funny that you say that because I remember my aunt, you know, the one who she's also in recovery. I remember thinking the same thing about her. Every time we'd come out to Oregon to visit the family, she was so, you know, smiling and fun, and I love her. She's so funny, um, and she's still absolutely. She's still smiley and fun and funny. But it makes sense as to you know why I thought that way when I was younger, and and uh, yeah, yeah. Um. So we usually run these at about a half hour to forty-five minutes. And we've kind of talked through a lot of your 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 story and mine. And, of course, you've been on the show, the regular show, like three times. So they can always research your life there, too, because I know you've talked about this yeah. before. Um, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to like to say to the, to the listeners or for anybody that's trying to get sober out there? You know, um, gosh, there's so much <laughs> that I would love to sit and sit here and say and but I think that I think something that helped me that I learned down the road as opposed to when I first got sober was that it's not it's not just about getting sober it's not just about not drinking or not doing drugs there's so there's so many behaviors and mindsets and my internal dialogue that I either had to change or keep in check on a daily basis and still do you know it's it's a lot of work and it's so extremely worth it it is so extremely worth it no matter what your circumstances are no matter how old you are what you know when you got sober what you've been through um, and for me, I think probably through my first whole year, the one thing that I kept telling myself that I still tell myself today on, you know, um, on a daily basis. And even sometimes during races, when I'm climbing up a mountain, I just tell myself, just do the next right thing. What is the next right thing? Don't get caught up in the big picture. Just the next a very wise way to put it uh, don't worry about everything just worry about the next step 
Right. Absolutely. Well, I thank you for being on the show. Um, again, you're always a friend of the show and you're always on. And, uh, of course, you know, we, we hang out uh, at the races with, with our mutual friends that some are normies mm. and some aren't. And eventually right. I'll get, uh, I'll get, uh, Jesse on the show. He keeps saying, let's do it. And he just never finds the time, but, uh, it'll be awesome to get him on someday. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good guy too. He's got a good story. He's always got lots I think to tell. Yeah, I think it's just going to end up, we're going to end up at a workout. I'm going to have to pull out my phone and just record us talking because getting him to sit in one place very long doesn't work. <laughs> I absolutely, absolutely agree with that 1000%. But I appreciate you for having me on the, on the show. And, and, you know, if anyone has any questions or wants to reach out, like I said, I have a educational background in the in the lifestyle that we once lived so i'm always always here i'm always willing to listen so you know as always listeners guests of the show have chosen to be on here of their own free will and uh, we ask that you if you reach out to them you know be honest and be respectful. And of course, I'm always here for you all. So you can email me at beastnetpodcast at gmail.com or just reach out through Facebook or Instagram if you need some help. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Sober Spartans on the Beastnet Podcast. Please remember to be respectful of the guests on the show and their level of anonymity. Episodes of Sober Spartans will air the last Sunday of the month and are open to the public to listen to. If you hear this and feel like you need help, don't be afraid to reach out. Find us on Facebook at Sober Spartans or email me at beastnetpodcast at gmail.com. We're here for you.